0: Welcome to the Cloud Pod where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan,
1: Ryan and Peter. Episode 91, recorded on October 21st, 2020. The Cloud Pod hashes it out. Good evening Ryan and Peter. How's it going this evening? It's going well. It's going well. Happy yeah. to be here. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, Jonathan's not here. He's got some other things going on this evening. So he he uh, apologized to listeners and said, I'm sorry, I can't make it, but uh, he'll be here next week. Yeah, it happens. And then, you know, next week, Peter won't be here. Then we week to that. Ryan won't be here. Hard to get, it's hard to get quorum sometimes in quarantine. Well, it's been a busy week here in the cloud world, but mostly because uh, HashiConf happens this week. Uh, HashiConf, of course, being the HashiCorp annual conference, uh, as well as all the other conferences this year, digital version. (laughs) And they announced several things that we should talk about here because they are relevant to all of our cloud friends out there in podcast land. First two, actually, is the HashiCorp cloud product, which only supports Terraform, really, uh, now supports Vaults is generally available and console in a public beta. Uh, This allows you to run uh, console workloads and vault workloads uh, that leverage EKS, ECS, EC2 application environments. You can put critical workloads into the cloud much faster with these services and HTTP service currently only supports AWS although they do plan to support Azure and GCP in the future. The new console feature not only supports the service discovery which is the most common console use case but also the service mesh and the service configuration capabilities across both containerized and non-containerized workloads and the vault uh, supports all of your Vault use cases that you've come to know and love.
2: I like these things coming to the cloud platform. I think it's a it's a neat, but I'm very apprehensive. Like, I'm very hesitant to trust anything from HashiCorp just with their, their breaking changes and, you know, the fact that these things are largely free except for, you know, some pay pay for premium services and it's a, you know, it's just, I feel like it's all going to change. I don't know what they've done to sort of may, make me so nervous, but it's cool.
1: I mean after you know they released zero one two terraform that was a breaking change for most of us from you know even prior to eleven. then they did zero one three also a breaking change to those of us who had already had a breaking change to zero one two. and you know now they've announced the beta of zero one four, which I'm sure will also include a breaking change that will break all my terraform code. So I don't <laughs> I, I totally get it why you would be potentially concerned about you know breaking changes.
2: Well, and their breaking changes are, are not the obvious ones, right? Like they, they they tell you what the breaking changes are between, you know, zero one two and zero one three, But that what they don't tell you is all the other stuff that they change that breaks things in unpredictable ways. Like the way that they look up external providers, for instance. Usually you could reference those locally and you could have a custom provider that you're referencing, but then they change the whole namespace. And now you have to, you know, basically reconfigure your existing provider. Or, or stand up an external registry for your providers in order to, to use a custom provider. And they don't mention that anywhere. It just stops
3: working one day. No, I just feel like it's a symptom because they're you know pretty much a leader in the industry. And I think it's a symptom of an immature industry that's changing quickly. And right now, the industry feels like having breaking changes is better than being held back from staying backward compatible, uh, but not being able to move forward as quickly with the things they've learned to date.
1: I mean, I I tend to agree with that, except for the fact that, you know, Terraform is probably, of the Hashi products, the one that is the most successful from an open source, you know, cloud perspective. has the most adoption from the cloud providers of any of their tools. And I feel like, you know, that level of adoption requires some responsibility around versioning and making sure that you don't cause massive breaking changes. But, you know, it's definitely heading in the right direction. But, you know, I don't don't know when they're going to get to 1.0. But, you know, the fact that console's already 1.9... Vault, I think, is nearing 1.0 as well. Like They have a lot of products that are already 1.0 products, but you know the one that everyone uses the most and everyone knows them for is still zero one four or zero one three. It's so weird, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's really bizarre. It's so I think even Nomad is like 1.4, and who uses Nomad? yeah and a large part of their conference was devoted towards
2: some of that decision making right trying to communicate out what they consider a 1.0 release and why these things aren't 1.0 release and and you know and the, the fast breaking changes and and, that. and i kind of feel like if you if you have to spend you know a large portion of your your conference kind of running you know, PR against the fact that you're sort of breaking a whole bunch of the community, you're sort of doing things wrong. And like, I get it, they're enthusiastic and they're they're bought in and they they believe it's, you know, the right way to do things. But they're also, you know, like, maybe need to evaluate, take a look in the mirror
1: that they're working too hard selling it versus just doing it in a way that's not so disruptive. Well, since I mentioned uh, 014, let me talk about the 014 beta. It does have several feature improvements, including security, visibility, and stability enhancements. There's three or no four major things that you should be aware of. The first one is they have included a sensitive input variable and derived sensitivity. So this allows config authors to now mark input variables at sensitive and have those values redacted from the Terraform console output. This provides a tool for practitioners to suppress the outputs of values from Terraform and infra pipelines into systems that may not have the same controls around logging and monitoring. So this is actually really great. If you're using Terraform plan and you're turning that to a logging system, you may have accidentally exposed variables. So this now fixes that problem for you uh, in a great way. So I'm actually glad this one's coming. This one, this one I'm excited about. The next one in zero one two there's a way you can do your Terraform plan. They'll give you a concise diff versus the full diff. And so that'll now be default in zero one four. So you will get a much reduced plan which is nice because it does give you a, a much faster way to see what's changed between two variable you know between this run and that run which can be a bit daunting if you have you know thousands of lines of diff to go through especially when it outputs everything even if it didn't change so that's kind of nice it'll just be the diffs uh, in a concise way you can use that already today in 012 if you're already there if you want to uh, pass the right parameter to that uh, but that'll be shipped as default in 014. And then the one that's burned me many times is being fixed. The provider dependency lock file. This is the provider dependency lock file can be used to ensure the collection of external dependencies used for a given configuration are consistent. This will help prevent unexpected changes to your infra code base due to inadvertent upgrade of the provider, which always sucks when the AWS provider gets updated and breaks something in some way you can't fix quickly.
2: They updated the random provider and it broke like so many of my builds. The random provider. Like Oh my God. It was the worst. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then because the world is uh taking arm by storm uh they will be officially supporting arm 64 for all the flavors of linux as part of 014 so those are the big ones there's a bunch of smaller ones we didn't talk about but that's uh those are some big ones so pretty nice
2: the sensitive input, I, I agree. Is I mean, because it's a huge thing. Is you know, someone who spends a lot of time building pipelines and working with p- those who building pipelines, and it just sucks when you have you're linking these things together, and so you need that input variable linked to an output, and so you're putting it in there, and it's just blatantly just broadcasting a password or or something. So this will be nice. I like it.
1: Anything else you're excited about, there, Peter?
3: I definitely like the fact that um, we can avoid. Breaking our pipelines with dependency lock files. So that will be nice to not get caught by surprise, especially when, you know, when you've got these pipelines that are building, not just managing a relatively static environment, but building and tearing down environments all day long for tests and dev. That could, that, that could just bring a whole development group to their extended coffee breaks
1: while we try to figure it out. There was some other stuff here. Let's talk about one other little minor update, and then we'll talk about the big ones. So the first one is the service mesh visualization in HashiCorp console 1.9. This allows you, if you're using console for service mesh, to now actually make that visual representation of that, as well as provide you identifying key metrics of those particular things. So... You know, service mesh across multiple accounts and multiple systems can be very complicated to troubleshoot and so this visualization gives you a very quick easy way to produce a visualization off your configuration file to help you troubleshoot and diagnose things it also ties into console and pulls out key metrics uh, around you know, utilization cpu etc um, to give you kind of a quick idea where there may be problems in your console service mesh so that's pretty nice but pretty minor feature-wise but cool yeah. I get super excited
3: about visualization tools. It's so much This, this to me is so much more exciting than no code. Like I'd rather write it in code and then get to see it uh, in pictures than try to design it in pictures.
2: That's a really good point that, you know, like a lot of the desire for no code is exactly what you're talking about, which is that easy to read visualization of the linking between, you know, objects. So I wonder, like, if 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 more more products, more you know, offered this level sort of like automatic visualization based on the code, if it, no code would even be a thing.
1: Well, so they decided to announce some new things, which is always fun because uh, HashiCorp always typically releases new things as open source first, and then figures out how to charge you lots of money for the enterprise features that you should be part of open source. But that's a whole other conversation for a different day. But the first one, uh, you know, we talked a lot about Google's zero access model. We talked about uh, Session Manager and the ability for that to help you connect to hosts without having to have jump hosts or piping out network paths, etc. But, you know, those are all very specific tools and capabilities to those cloud providers. And so if you're multi-cloud or you want to do something on premise like that where you use role-based access to access servers... You can't really do that. And so what typically happens is you have, you know, a single VPN user account that gives you access to a very wide network because it doesn't support dynamic routing and dynamic systems, et cetera. So HashiCorp is going to fix that for you with Boundary, which is their new open source project that enables practitioners and operators to securely access dynamic hosts and services with a fine grained authorization without requiring direct network access. Uh, So this does use an agent type capability that handles the connection to the backend host, as well as back to you, the end user, once you're authenticated to the portal or the SSH command line, uh, which supports both. It's a simple workflow for securely accessing hosts and services while also reducing risk and attack surface associated with traditional solutions. With boundary, access is based on the trusted identity of the user rather than the network location of the user. The user connects and authenticates a the boundary, then based on their assigned role, they can connect to available hosts, services, and cloud resources. Trusted identities are a core principle of boundary, defining which users are allowed to connect with a specific set of resources. This is all very pretty cool stuff. It's pretty early days. It's boundary zero dot one. So you know if zero one three is not production, you have a long way to get to production for boundary. But this is open source. They do have some features already in the works. The first one is uh, integration with OIDC providers, dynamic target catalogs pulled from console, AWS, Azure, or GCP natively. And the one that I'm most excited for is HashiCorp Vault integration, which they say is coming in 0.2, which will make that really cool because now you're talking about those secrets actually being stored in the Hashi HashiVault, uh, not having to be accessed by me, the end user. You just connect me to the back end using that Vault credential, which is really great. So I see huge potential for this, especially for shops that are using Vault and Console. And I think uh, this is a really great feature. I'm glad someone kind of created the cloud agnostic version of this one.
2: Or just the open source version, right? You've you've had variants of this with like Centrify and I, Okta has a solution. There's a couple other, you know, enterprise focused expensive options that you can do for this. And so having something that's open source that you can stand up and set up on your own, this is great. 'cause it's been really hard to do and I've done it, you know, using, you know, PAM files that connect to LDAP and ADFS for for authentication. It's it's tricky and it's hard to maintain. And in a lot of cases, because you're still relying directly on the host talking to that IDP, you need that network isolation still. So this is fantastic. I love this this model that'll get us away from, you know, VPNs and bastion hosts and all the kind of like very stifling it has to be on this ip range to be managed kind of solutions this is great
1: yeah so there's there's one other open source solution for this called palmerium they also provide an open source version of this capability uh, but of course it's not as fully featured and, and plugged into the vaults and hashi ecosystem so you know while they're not the first open source i think they have a lot of really compelling features that make them interesting
3: how long before these products are mature enough to where we're not talking anymore about private networks and VPCs. So the, the, they have to get mature enough and then you have to use them enough to convince
2: your audit and compliance and risk teams that they're safe. So a long time.
3: A <laughs> long time. <laughs> but it's safer this way. I don't care. Yeah.
0: Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud CloudPod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod www.fogops.io slash the pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered.
1: All right, so the next feature from HashiCorp is kind of interesting. I'm not as big on this one as I was about boundary, but I think it has some compelling story use cases for it. Is the HashiCorp Waypoint HashiCorp believes in a consistent developer workflow to build, deploy, and release applications across any platform. And to help with this, HashiCorp is releasing a new open source tool that provides developers a consistent workflow to build, deploy, and release applications across any platform. Out of the box, Waypoint supports Kubernetes, Nomad, Amazon ECS, Google Cloud Run, Azure Container Instances, Docker, Buildpacks and more, and Waypoint is a fully extensible and is based on a plugin system which allows Waypoint to work with any tool or platform. Uh, after deployment, Waypoints provide a features such as logs, exec and more to validate and debug any deployments. Waypoint is software you download and self-host. This is not part of the cloud offering and it is not something that relies on other HashiCorp products, which is interesting, so it is completely a standalone entity. Several of the features here for you to play with if you use Waypoint, Waypoint up, which is a single command that builds, deploys, and releases your application. Automatic per app and per deployment URLs, which basically are URLs that tell you if it's been deployed by Waypoint and what the SASLAT deployment was with a valid TLS certificate. Exec, which you can execute commands in the context of a deployed application. I think this is mostly for containers, but they didn't specify that in the press release. This basically opens a shell in your app for debugging, executing DB migrations, and many other purposes. And then logs for real time snapshot of logs, a web UI that allows you to view builds, deployments, and releases for projects and apps, and the plugins that I mentioned earlier to build, deploy, and release logic are all pluggable. Uh, so if you like the flexibility of GitHub actions, but you don't want GitHub, I think this is maybe a good alternative, but it's very much a Jenkins competitor in many, many ways.
2: These types of announcements are a dagger through my heart just because I feel like it's, it's moving away from something I found foundationally important to the development experience. And so the more you kind of separate the running of an application from the development of the application, which these systems are intended to do, um, I feel like you're you're doing your application a disservice. You're decoupling from the runtime and anything that might change in that environment it makes it incredibly hard to leverage third-party SaaS things in a way that makes you know any kind of sense for deployment or management. You know most of these solutions rely on some other ecosystem sort of managing your deployment, and so you know, in a Kubernetes, you know, land or even nomad, there's a, there has to be a cluster that's hosted and maintained by someone. And so like, I feel like, you know, I get the, I get the need, I get the want people want, you know, to develop locally, test the app and then just get it out in production without thinking about a whole lot. But I also feel like unless you're doing something incredibly simplistic, as far as like a web facing app, you're going to end up burned by this as it needs more memory or scales you know, to some middleware or data layer, and just unpredictably, and you will have no insight into any any portion of how that works. And so, I just just don't support it. I just don't like it. I get the ease, I get the desire, but there's a lot of solutions that I just don't feel are that complicated for this. And the the URL thing is interesting too, because you host Waypoint, but the the service, the component that that creates and hosts the URL, that is actually hosted by HashiCorp. And you, there is no option today to host that internally. So, if you don't want to send all your build information to Hashi, you have to basically turn that off, which I find very strange. So, it's it's a neat concept. I let, You know, like the URL per deployment, you know, is, is a way that I thought was, you know, is kind of an interesting turn on this because it's not really your application URL they're talking about. It's the deployment URL you know so it's you can navigate to different versions and 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 do all that good stuff so it's kind of cool but it's yeah uh, it's an abstraction that i don't like
3: yeah you can't get rid of the complexity we keep trying to get rid of the complexity and we just keep creating another layer you're just moving the complexity right there's some there's
2: someone that's going to have to figure out how this works and how all the different pieces touch together and you know like you know whether it falls on your sre team or your internal devops team or you know That one guy who knows all the services, who can debug it all. We keep pushing towards that direction. It's troublesome.
1: Well, the the final one is a little bit of an interesting feature, which took me reading through this press release twice to really wrap my head around what they were doing (laughs) but this is the console terraform sync now in tech preview the console terraform sync capability is a new tool for automating network infrastructure powered by their robust terraform provider ecosystem oftentimes network and infosec teams are driven by manual ticket driven processes and this creates an impedance mismatch with an app team that's and slows delivery overall Happens often in day two operations, including scaling up and scaling down dynamic network environments. And these manual processes pose a large risk to an organization by increasing the likelihood of a network outage from misconfiguration of multiple network devices. Uh, And so this tool basically helps solve this problem by announcing this tool to sync with Terraform. Uh, these capabilities provide operational consistency across teams using a shared source of truth-for-service discovery, which is console in this case, which enables a publisher-subscriber paradigm when apps scale up or down. Uh, the solution consists of three components, which first, of course, is console, where all your configuration gets stored, uh, Terraform sync, and the Terraform sync compatible Terraform module built by their partners. So Hashi is partnered with A10, Checkpoint, Cisco, F5, and Palo Alto networks as the launch partner for the console Terraform sync. And this Terraform sync introduces a key construct called a task, uh, which enables users to subscribe to the desired service in the console catalog and trigger the execution of the specified automation runbook when those subscribed services are updated. So all of that said, I can kind of boil this down to if you have systems that are dynamically adding new nodes to an auto-scaling group for happens, and as it updates your console system, console can automatically trigger your Terraform job to basically add those new nodes into your firewall rules or your security groups uh, to give you a really dynamic networking infrastructure component some of the use cases that they gave as examples which i don't think are the best but they kind of give you an idea application teams must wait for manual changes in the network to release scale up down and replay their apps this creates a bottleneck especially in frequent workflows related to scaling up down the application breaking the devops goals of self-service enablement console terraform sync automates this process thus decreasing the possibilities of human error and manually editing config files as well as decreasing the overall time taken to push out configuration changes and then uh, the other one is around another network change related to firewalls. So same idea. So this is really powerful, but really packed in a way that makes no sense to me and how they decided to construct this problem and how they want to s- explain the solution to the problem. Like I said, it took me a couple times to get through this. Go, what are you guys actually doing? And what are you trying to say? And really what's happening is you're making console service discovery updates become a trigger for Terraform actions. And that's really what you're getting at the end of the day, which has a whole lot of use cases. And the providers to automatically configure the network devices based on those actions. Correct. Yeah. So it, it, it's great. And it has a lot of it opens up a lot more than just networking and security use cases. There's a ton of other use cases where um, something like this may become really handy. You think about you create a new AWS account in your landing zone. And you want that to update service discovery that then updates your configuration for your transit gateway. There's a ton of really cool use cases. Again, I'm not sure that their documentation did the best job explaining them. How about like adding VPCs?
3: Yeah, adding VPCs like we used to with transit, the Cisco transit, uh, transit gateway, yeah, gateway stuff before before there was a
2: real transit gateway solution. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, that was horrendously complicated. So, although it is, it still gives me the heebie jeebies thinking that the network is just change, just changing. And hopefully, those providers are rock solid. I've
2: built this system a few times in, in previous lives and I've almost built this or half built this system a few more times because it is terribly complex. And so like this this is definitely something that needs to happen. There's there's a lot of fear about automatic changes to network. And that's just because it's really easy to screw things up in a big bad way. But I I would I would argue that You know, our manual configuration files and our change management ITIL processes have just as much risk as that just because it's so easy to make a mistake and they're manual driven processes. The only thing that's preventing us from catastrophic damage is that it's slow as molasses. So, it's just time scale. and so yeah, it's just, you know, these things have to happen. You know, as when I think about, yeah, transit gateway, even the new new transit gateway in Amazon, you know, you still need to dynamically create routing tables and link VPCs together and you know, you know, onboard to a transit gateway. These are very powerful automations that you can use. And if you have, you know, an on-prem system that's talking to your cloud system, having the ability for these things to configure that side of the network gear which you never had before, you know, like you have it in the cloud, right? Everything's an API in the cloud. The minute you go to on-prem, it's two weeks after your ticket is reviewed by security. And then it's got to be scheduled on the change calendar. And then based on your network team's availability, it gets pushed. It's a kick in the teeth when you're trying to be fast moving and and agile.
1: Well, that's, uh, that's the big stuff from HashiConf. Uh, Any other final thoughts on HashiCorp and their conference? I thought it was a good
2: conference. I uh, attended more sessions than I usually would. And I think that's that's because of their layout. They, they made it really easy for me to find topics. They, they were really focused on community engagement. I think, you know, I was very impressed with Google's conference as well, some of the layout that they had there. And I think this is an improvement on that.
1: I, th- I think Google's problem was the length. I think their their layout and format was great, but then you just couldn't do it for nine weeks. Where this two days, is perfect. Yeah. If they had
2: published, you know, maybe, or, or, you know, the whole nine weeks in advance, like they, you know, like maybe, but yeah, there's too much. It it was too hard to maintain, but you know, they had digital swag. They recreated a lot of the the elements of, of a, of a conference, you know, an in-person conference. And I thought that was a good move. And I really liked it. They had, you know, playlists that you could download and listen to. They had themes, they had they places where you can interact with the community you know, when you start thinking about, you know, this might be the new normal for conferences. They did a really good job on making that something that I would look forward to rather than something I'd be compromising and accepting.
1: Well, hopefully Amazon was paying attention and they can incorporate the awesome things into reInvent. So we'll see. But Hopefully. Hopefully. Well, let's move on to uh, Amazon news because uh, they were still busy while HashiConf was going on. They were busy releasing all kinds of crazy stuff. So let's get into that. First one up is the CloudWatch Synthetics uh, Recorder for Google Chrome. This allows you to generate user flow scripts uh, for your canaries more easily with a simple recording action. Uh, every time I've ever tried to use one of these web recorders to do something like a synthetic, it's always turned out terribly well not really uh, but you know I'm hoping this one does better uh, so canaries of course are modules and light and these lightweight scripts that get created by the recorder uh, allow you to run them on a schedule to monitor your endpoints and APIs from the outside in uh, the extension is available in the Chrome web server today and credit to the headless recorder uh, which a lot of this work was based on apparently uh, from Amazon which was a little bit of a kerfuffle initially because it wasn't mentioned in the blog post and the the headless recorder guy mentioned it on Twitter and they, per- they apologized profusely and uh, made sure he got credited so that's good
2: yeah i have the same experience with these things like you want this to work so badly right because you don't want to you know break out selenium and config this you just want to be able to like click 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 and be done and then you you click click and it works once you're great you move on and it never works again somehow i don't i, I don't understand how this works but
1: yeah every time you change one little teeny tiny thing and all of a sudden your my entire script breaks i'm like i just moved one pixel I'm like why yeah I, I i'm sure if i was a front-end dev i would get it better but i I'm not a front-end dev, I do backend and APIs and things that are nice, so.
2: <laughs> They're at least concrete and declarative. UIs, you know, things move as I change my window size. Yeah,
3: just write the scripts. <laughs> Learn the code,
1: write yeah. the scripts. Uh, so I do have a couple of CloudWatch synthetics that I've done in the past, very simple ones uh, to do basic you know, checks. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna play with this. I'll report back on Justin doesn't thing in the future. Uh, how, it, how it went, uh, but I have not had chance to do that yet. But I do need to set up synthetic canaries for the CloudPod website, so I will do that and come back to you guys.
0: Cloud computing has changed the way we live, do business, and stay connected. With everyone using the same cloud platforms, winning and losing comes down to having the best talent to build products better and faster. So whether you're an aspiring innovator looking to level up or a business harnessing the transformative power of the cloud, tech skills and cloud certifications have never been more important. Cloud Academy has thousands of video courses, learning paths, practical hands-on labs in real-world cloud environments, and tools designed to help teams assess, build and validate critical cloud skills. Most importantly, Cloud Academy stays agile, challenging you with new content, labs and tons of features that ensure your skills stay relevant and everyone can level up. They cover everything from major certifications to DevOps, security and programming languages. Cloud Academy is a cloud training platform of choice for Fortune 500 companies, and thousands of tech professionals around the world. Don't just take their word for it. Check out their reviews on G2 and get started now at cloudacademy.com. For a limited time, our listeners can lock in 50% off the monthly price for life. Just put in the coupon code cloudpod when checking out. It's a great way to pursue certifications or just cloud build expertise during this crazy time. Again, go to cloudacademy.com and use the coupon code cloudpod to lock in 50% off the monthly price.
1: Graviton fever is spreading like wildfire at AWS because it's awesome. And, you know, ARM processors can save you a ton of money. They can save you a ton of cost. And so they are giving you better performance for less money, which better performance ratio. And so now Amazon is bringing that capability to their open source databases on RDS. So if you are using MySQL or Postgres or MariaDB or any of the other many, many databases that are open source that support ARM processors already, they most likely are supported by the RDS capabilities. And you can deploy a DB M6Gs and DB R6Gs with the Graviton 2 processors. And you can switch existing RDS instances or create new ones via the CLI or the GUI. you can have to see a 35% improvement in performance and a 52% improvement in price performance in numbers, which is quite impressive for those of you using those databases is that could be a big, big improvement for your user. So do check that out. Do test it before you go to production, but definitely something <laughs> that I would I'd be taking a hard look at if I wasn't using you know, horrible things like SQL Server. You know, one of the things that uh, they also mentioned this week, that I thought would, would just be a little sh- added note here, is that they uh, apparently have migrated their three hundred thousandth database uh, with DMS. So they only released DMS in twenty sixteen. So in four years, they moved three hundred thousand databases. That's a that's a big accomplishment. So congratulations to the DMS team on that as well. But now move even more databases with Graviton. I've done DMS and by, I'm a huge fan, even though
3: there's some shortcomings of it. I that thing was rock solid once I once I found the. Uh, the shortcomings and overcame them. Rock solid. It was made a couple of migrations super easy. I love that. And it's so much. You know. Like, yes,
1: there are rough edges, but the alternative way more rough edges. You yeah, know, totally. <laughs> so, I really like only find the rough edges when you try to convert database formats when you go from like i'm gonna go from MySQL to postgres and you want to use dms that's where i find those rough edges but if you're going from you know on-prem postgres to aws rds postgres that's a pretty simple transition for the most part there are a couple of still rough edges but the big ones are if you're converting database platforms to be clear yeah and like schema and managing delta
3: so isn't the biggest thing about this just like sell your intel stock
1: yeah that's the biggest thing is yeah, you know, between Apple supposedly re- announcing in November their new ARM-based laptops and maybe a couple other things, and now this—you know, with the AWS going a big way and everyone else following the ARM thing—Intel's in trouble. I'd sell. I would not buy.
2: And the performance improvements are real. Like these numbers, like I, you know, I have firsthand knowledge now of moving a heavy, a heavy compute workload to this, and it is just amazing. Like you, you hear the fifty-two percent, and you're like, oh, that's just marketing. No. <laughs> I can actually process twice as much data. That is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like I can, you know, I can demonstrate that. And so I'm moving to, you know, I'm I'm moving to Graviton for a lot of workloads faster than Amazon is actually providing them. I keep running into places and in a specific AZs where I, I don't have that option just because they haven't rolled it out yet.
1: Awesome. Unless you need the capacity for scaling, but then it's not so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Different problem. Yeah. So I think we talked about, I don't know, maybe six months to a year ago, we talked about the fact that Aurora would allow you to automatically increase the size of your disk, uh, which we commented. The shortcoming of that was, of course, that your disk could become 128 terabytes and you'd be paying for that even though you went and deleted you know the data that you accidentally put into the table you didn't want. About uh, six months or nine months ago, we talked about uh, Aurora getting the ability to automatically increase the size of your EBS volumes into uh, your database, which is great until you screw up and you accidentally insert, you know, 128 terabytes of data into your database. And now you delete it, but you're still paying for that on Aurora. That's a, that's a pretty big bummer. Amazon is now announcing the ability to dynamically resize your database storage space. So if you do have uh, that, that, oops, uh, and you go and delete the table or you you go remove the data you don't need anymore in your database, you will now only pay for the storage you actually use, which is really great. Of course, it's still limited to a maximum of 128 uh Tebby bytes. Uh, and will now automatically decrease when data is deleted. Uh, this is available for MySQL 1.23 and 2.09 and Aurora Postgres 10.13 and 11.8. And expected to be enabled across all regions by the end of November. So that's really great. Nice cost savings for those of you who've
2: made that mistake. I Today I learned Tebby bytes. I, I don't really know what that is, but uh, it's cool. Sounds big. Sounds big.
1: Yeah, I had to look that up earlier because I, so I, Amazon keeps using uh, TIB and in their in their acronyms, and I didn't really know what that meant, which is embarrassing. I never looked at that, but I should have. Yeah, so apparently a tebibyte is equal to 1.09951 terabytes. That's so important to distinguish between terabytes and tebibytes. Now I see why yeah i mean i'm I'm sure there's a reason <laughs> mathematically it's sort of like you know gigabytes versus byte you know bits versus bytes I'm sure there's a mathematical reason that you want to do this um but it uh, you know I don't know <laughs> it still doesn't really make clear to <laughs> me but it, it makes sense no if
2: there wasn't if there wasn't two measuring systems, we wouldn't have to do this like <laughs> bits versus bytes is just because network gear versus storage gear like
1: that yeah yeah same same idea. Amazon is improving AWS budgets. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> AWS budgets are getting two new features. The first one is uh, budget actions. Uh, so you can define actions you want to take in your account when a budget exceeds its threshold. Huh, imagine that, actual or Kill forecasted. everything. Yeah. Yep. Remove uh, access. That's exactly access. <laughs> what they say to do. So this level of control can allow you to reduce unintentional overspending in your Amazon account. For example, you can choose to apply a custom deny EC2 run instances IAM policy to a user group or role in your account once your monthly budget for EC2 has been exceeded. You can execute actions automatically or require a workflow approval process. So you can email someone and say, hey, you're going to spend a bunch of money this month if you say yes. Are you sure you want to say yes? And they then say yes and then say, I don't remember that email. That's how that'll work out. <laughs> <laughs> In addition to that, they are giving you a price cut on AWS Budgets. Uh, so if you have been using AWS Budgets, you know, you basically were paying 0.02 cents or 2 cents per budget day. That is now free, which is great. So you can use Budgets. Without Budget Actions, that is now no longer going to cost you any money. If you want to use these new Budget Actions, though, they will cost you 2 cents per budget day for up to 62 free budget days. And then you can pay for $0.10 for every budget action over the 62 free ones you get. 62 actions enabled budget days will cover two budgets with actions enabled for 31 days for the life of the regular account or consolidated building family. So uh, if you have that, you get a pretty – for most people, they will fit firmly into the free tier. But for those larger enterprises, you may end up paying a few extra dollars, which I think at $0.10 a piece, they're not too bad.
3: It is kind of ironic though. You you went over budget. Why? Because – you spend money on your budget actions trying to stay under budget. <laughs> that would be pretty funny. I well, wonder if the action could be to turn off budget actions. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's just turtles all the way down. Well, in the ever-continuing quest for AWS to kill Snowflake, they've announced another feature that is another building block towards that reality, I think. This is the cross-database queries for Amazon Redshift uh, now in preview. Amazon Redshift now supports ability to query across databases in a Redshift cluster. With cross-database queries, you can seamlessly query data from any database in the cluster, regardless of which databases you are connected to. Cross-database queries eliminate data copies and simplify your data organization to support multiple business groups on the same cluster, or for multi-tenant type configurations for SaaS applications. Uh, Support for the cross-database queries available in all Redshift RA3 instance types, and this is definitely going to be a big deal, I think, sometime at reInvent when they announce all these things coming together to make you a very large distributed on-demand redshift sharded beast which will compete with snowflake
2: so I thought this was going to be the announcement for reinvent I really did and so the fact that they're announcing it beforehand you're absolutely right like what, what do they have you know like because it has been leading up there's breadcrumbs to let you know that it's coming oh yeah
1: breadcrumbs for months now that you know they're going to do something so. so
2: I thought this one was it and so I'm now I'm like oh I've
3: I've, I've misunderstood <laughs> there's something bigger at hand <laughs> well, if there is something bigger at hand, it was very, it was very honorable of Amazon to
1: wait until after Snowflake's IPO. This is a really big feature for those of you who use Redshift and had to do these kind of things. It's it's awful to do this. This didn't even get a full Jeff Barr blog post treatment. It just got a, you know, eh, we announced this feature. It's there. You can use it, which tells me that there's something much bigger coming because this, this, this on its own is a huge announcement. And for them not to trumpet this in a bigger way, just makes me wonder what's coming. Yeah, I'm shocked. I'm
2: shocked by this announcement and and how subdued it is. Like it just, I it just means I have no understanding of what <laughs> what whatever they're going to announce at re-event is going to be beyond my comprehension.
1: Well, for those of you who are using Lambda, you have may, you probably know that you have to have an internet gateway or a NAT gateway, or your host has to be on the public internet to actually kick off a Lambda function and to send data to Lambda, which can be a bit of a challenge if you want to have an application that is not exposed to the internet or does not have any of your data potentially crossing the internet for compliance reasons. And so Amazon is announcing the support for private link for AWS Lambda uh, is now available. You know, Supporting private link allows you to invoke Lambda functions securely from inside your VPC or on-premise data centers without exposing traffic to the public internet. Again, this is available for all of your compliance needs, and this is really the big driver for these things. Uh, it's available to you in all regions, except for Cape Town and Milan. However, those will be coming very, very soon, and standard AWS private link pricing does apply for the Lambda interface endpoints, and know that it does use a ENI in your VPCs to uh, attach to this.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's it's a very handy, you know, to have private link for AWS service that you're going to use when you want to just blanket restrict outbound access to an environment. So, which is, you know, a lot of compliance needs. That's exactly what they do because they want the the sort of big hammer option. Like you cannot get to the internet. It's isolated. And then you get restricted to know what you can use. And so, this is this a great ad f- for those teams that need
1: it. And then this last announcement from Amazon this week, it makes me angry. Amazon CloudFront is announcing the new Origin Shield, which is a centralized caching layer that helps decrease your cache hit ratio to reduce the load on your origin. Origin Shield also decreases origin operating costs by collapsing requests across regions, so as so few of them go back to the origin per object. You can know, use Lambda at the Edge with Origin Shield to enable advanced serverless logic with dynamic origin load balancing, and customers can use Origin Shield for live streaming, image handling, or multi-CDN workloads with a 57% reduction to their origin load. Uh, this is. Charge as a request fee for each request that goes to the Origin Shield as an incremental layer on your costing. Now, go ahead, Peter. Why am I mad? Because the name that includes Shield makes you think it's a security product? You are 1,000% correct. (laughs) <laughs> they already have they already have shield and shield advanced which is their ddos product so you know this comes out and i'm like oh this is going to be a ddos enhancement for cloudfront that's going to be kind of cool and you read through this and you're like this is not what this is at all like why why causes confusion what are you shielding me from exactly you're, <laughs> you're shielding, shielding your, the origin you're shielding the origin yeah so which, I mean, it, it's like w- a cdn <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like what a CDN should do. I mean, it is nice to be able to go back to, you know, if basically if basically what this says is if, you know, someone comes into the CDN from Milan and basically hits this ryan.jpg and it's not in the cache, that it, it'll make the request for all of them and basically put into the shield and basically distribute that out to all the regions. So when Peter hits it from, you know, Australia, he'll get ryan.jpg potentially in a better place. It uses machine learning, I'm sure. It uses smarter things to help optimize that so that he doesn't take the cache hit uh, every time someone from a different region comes in. So, I mean, it's kind of nice. It's kind of like a centralized cache Cash for the cache, which is kind of weird, but, uh, you know, I'm glad to see it because uh, I think it's a good improvement, but again, the name makes me mad.
3: I saw it and I'm like, I was reading it and I'm like, I don't get it. Where's the shield? I'm like,
1: oh. yeah. Where's the DDoS part of this announcement? I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> I mean, you can still, you can, you know, in fairness, you can still attach a WAF policy and a DDoS policy through shield to this, to this thing that has an origin shield in it. So that's just going to be confusing. Can't wait to see how Terraform works that out and the provider all right moving on to gcp so you know the holidays are coming up very quickly and you know google wants you to know that they do have to do db maintenance it's a way of life updates keep the database running smooth and securely and happy And with managed services like cloud sql your database will automatically be patched and done in a way that involves less downtime But, you know, no one likes downtime, no matter if it's one second or it's 10 minutes or it's 24 hours, you know, whatever that time is. And to address this, they are announcing they will give you more control over when your instances undergoes routine maintenance. Uh, So Cloud SQL is introducing maintenance-deny period controls. With maintenance-deny period, you can prevent automatic maintenance from occurring during a 90-day time period. And this will be especially useful for Cloud SQL retail customers about to kick off the busiest time of the year with Black Friday and Cyber Monday, which I am not so sure it's going to be so great this year. (laughs) We'll see. Well, Cyber Monday, you know, it's probably going to go like gangbusters. But yeah,
2: some of the, some of the holidays. There's
1: a lot of unemployed people right now. I'm not I'm not sure the holiday season is going to be as... I mean, they just said Amazon Prime Day, which just finished up, was not as good as prior years. Either because, it you know, September or October is not the right time to do Prime Day. Or just because you know, people don't have any money because they're all laid off from COVID. So, <laughs> I'm not, not entirely sure which way that's going to go. Yeah, because the other effect is that so many
3: people were forced to learn how to shop online through this, that it feels like the aggregate population of online shoppers probably dramatically went up during COVID.
1: Oh, for sure. Which would, that would, in, in theory, mean that you're going to have a bet more effective, you know, Amazon Prime Day event, but that didn't happen. So, that's where the, you know, that theory is good, but I don't know. I don't know that's reality, you know, as much of a reality as we hope it is. We'll see. I think it's going to be a rough holiday season for the retailers. We will we will find out uh, very soon because we're only, we're, we're only a few weeks away. Uh, theoretically,
3: even if nobody lost their job from COVID, so many people are not going to be going to parties where they would have to bring gifts to that I could imagine gift purchasing being way down this year. Yeah. So
2: many little patterns that we've sort of have, you know, from sizes of, you know, dinners. Like I was reading an article about the number of turkeys and, you know, the size of turkeys. And like, it's it's interesting to think about the patterns that we're going to change. And it's going to be any number of little things like that. It's
1: going to be amazing. Yeah. They were saying they're they afraid they're going to have too many turkeys. That'll be interesting.
2: Too many turkeys and then too, too big. Yeah. Yeah. That was, the, that was the interesting part. Was that too big?
3: We always used to get 30 pound turkeys because we had a lot of people coming over. Not going to get a 30 pound turkey this year. I'm
1: going to get a, a butterball. It's going to be small, perfect size. <laughs> like for four people. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Cash is king, as we just talked about with the Amazon announcement. So Google uh, has decided to lower the price of the cloud CDN right before the holiday season. So that's pretty nice. CDN is critical for fast, reliable web and video content delivery, of course, particularly with Black Friday coming up. The CDN may be the difference between a happy CEO and a very unhappy CEO if your auto scaling doesn't uh, help you out. Google is reducing the price of the cash fill, which is basically when content is fetched from the origin across the board by up to 80%, still getting the same benefits of their global private backbone at reduced costs. They've also removed cash to cash fill charges and cash invalidation for charges for all customers going forward. And with this new set of flexible cache capabilities announced, it's now even easier to use Cloud CDN to optimize the performance of your application. So that cache invalidation, removing the charge for that, that's super nice because that's a bit annoying when you, you pay for a cache invalidation which can cost you a bunch of money if it's a, a big cash.
2: And usually it, you're already stinging because it's it's sort of, you know, either a mistake or an artifact of trying to make rapid changes. And so like, yeah, this is,
1: this is great. I mean, it might be even a little bit better than that shield thing. <laughs> 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 I mean, it's a price cut and I don't have to pay for cash filling and I don't have to pay for cash invalidation. Like that's, those are, that's, that's some money right there.
3: You think they should have called it cash invalidation shield service? No. Anything with shield, no.
1: I mean, I love their. I love the pun. Cache is king. <laughs> well, GCP has released several new user-friendly SQL capabilities uh, to BigQuery, which means that BigQuery has finally achieved the the uh, highest level of playing field of all NoSQL solutions. Which now you've added SQL back to NoSQL. Fantastic! That's how you know that NoSQL has really hit the mark and really hit you know come full circle. But BigQuery users can now use table-level operations to evolve their schema and prepare tables for new data using the new commands, things including add columns, truncate tables, Unicode table naming. They also provide you the ability to connect to external storage buckets through SQL and declare scripting with SQL using execute commands and defined user functions and duplicate column names and then new date functions, et cetera, all these amazing things that are all SQL things that you now have available to you in BigQuery. So if you were struggling with BigQuery, because you don't know anything about SQL Server, you're now in luck because they may now support your use case. Doesn't support all SQL, but just some pretty convenient language to use to describe what data you want out of a table. It is.
3: There's a reason why it's it it convenient a very long or is time.
2: it just ubiquitous? Like, you know, it's just been around forever and a lot of people know. Even I can stumble my way through SQL queries.
3: Exactly. I've
1: been around forever, and therefore <laughs> it, seems, <laughs> it seems it seems it's very convenient. Is, is Vim ubiquitous or is it just convenient? Like, I mean, <laughs> I think SQL is kind of that same boat of like Emacs and Vim and all these other things that have been around forever. Sed, awk, yeah, you know, they're just, they're things that everyone knows because you have to know them and that's why they exist. And so, you know, when you get into a data structure and you're trying like, I want to take this data out. Well, I know SQL. I don't know this new fancy NoSQL language that makes no sense to me. Alright, the last one up here for Google is the new Lending Doc AI. Artificial AI continues to transform industries across the globe, and business decision makers of all kinds are taking notice. One example is the mortgage industry, which is close and near and dear to my heart. Lending institutions like banks and mortgage brokers process hundreds of pages of borrower paperwork for every loan. A heavily manual process that adds thousands of dollars to the cost of issuing a loan. At Google, their goal is to understand and synthesize the content of the World Wide Web, has given them unparalleled capabilities in extracting structured data from unstructured sources and they're taking that capability and giving it to you through document ai and now with this very tightly vertically integrated lending doc ai solution built on top of document ai uh, google is delivering their first specialized solution in the realm Uh, lending doc ai provides industry-leading data accuracy for documents relevant to lending which includes increased operational efficiency in the loan process improved home loan experience for borrowers and lenders and support for regulatory and compliance requirements Uh, Google partnered with Roostify to transform their home loan experience during this origination using the new Lending AI. Roostify is a company that makes a point-of-sale digital lending platform that uses Google Cloud Lending Doc AI. And there's a quote here from Rajesh Bhatt, founder and CEO of Roostify, who I know. The mortgage industry is still early in transitioning from traditional manual processes to digitally enabled and automated. And we believe that transformation will happen much more quickly with power of AI. And if you're going to do AI, you've got to go Google. I do
2: think that this is the first time I've seen in an, an AI article that they've accurately described the AI transformation by calling it artificial AI, because this is OCR, and it's scanning documents, and there's nothing intelligent about this. It is just digitizing a very manual process, which has a huge you know, impact, but everything else is buzzword bingo, and it just cracks me up. Reading through this is just like, you know, it's... <laughs> You're pulling data, usually text data. That's yeah. It.
1: I mean, I, I, I can't talk too much about this because this is, you know, day job territory that I can't talk about. But, you know, this is a hard problem. And I will tell you, it's a very difficult problem that many people spend time on in the mortgage space trying to solve. And so if this helps companies on Google do that, uh, that's a great thing. I think Textrack solves the same problem for you on AWS. And there's also AI capabilities on Azure that also help you out in this space. So the verticalization and really specializing it towards mortgage is really the most interesting part of the announcement.
3: Absolutely. And I think that that's, you know, we see these areas where all of these hyperscalers are effectively developing free software uh, in order to get you c- to consume more of their compute. And when you take this step where you're actually going up that, you know, from like a managed service or or a or horizontally common service across many industry up to a really industry specific service, but it's a huge step uh, for these hyperscalers right now if they start offering these services it could make whole industries shed a whole layer of what they thought was their core competency and force them to move up a layer and focus on you know customer experience ui other other areas of engagement as these like pretty high level software features become commoditized
1: yeah well i, I think this This move we're starting to see the cloud providers make where they're starting to create, you know, healthcare Google and healthcare Azure and these very highly verticalized set of solutions that are now are like, you know, here's the playbook for all these things and how to use them in healthcare or how to use them in financial services. I think that's huge. I think that's going to enable the companies who know they want to go to the cloud, but they don't necessarily know how to get there. And they don't want to invent the wheel. Like that's not their specialty. They want to make. They want to, you know, be an insurer. though They want to be a healthcare provider. They don't want to worry about the right way to do these things. So when I give them a pre-packaged garden that gives them what they want, and gives them these capabilities, as an enabler to the cloud. So I think this verticalization in, in the cloud providers is going to become a big story in the next couple of years.
3: Yeah, it's good. it's going to be huge. I mean, just think about. I know you can't do this because of you got to get like if you're a bank, you got to get your go through all the process of becoming a bank, but. Imagine if they just had like core banking and then anybody can be a bank and you're really just, your differentiator is really just the user experience in interacting with your bank or the type of loans you can get or the rate you can get. Yeah, it's just huge. I
1: mean, just think about Oracle ERP or SAP ERP solutions, right? They're verticalized towards the vertical. So when I go to healthcare or I go to a hotel or I go to a restaurant and I sell them SAP or I sell them Oracle it's already done. Like half the work is already there. It's already the business rules, the common things you need to worry about as a hospitality person. That's already there. And that makes it that much easier to adopt these solutions. And you know, the, Plus side for the vendor is they get charged more money. <laughs> you know, it's very possible that you'll see these verticalizations of these products, you know, in healthcare and all these things, that then they cost more money, even though they're really the same services you can get in the normal Amazon or the normal Azure or the normal Google, but they can charge a slightly higher amount of money because of the expertise they're giving to you from their experience with the other healthcare companies. Yeah, it's going to be, that's why I said in the next couple of years, I think that's going to be the big, the big shift that we see happening in these is, you know, we have building blocks and primitives to now we're having more managed, fully managed solutions to verticalization as kind of the third step. That's really where we're heading next. So it's going to be interesting times uh, as they continue to democratize IT in a big way uh, across these companies. Moving on to Azure. You can now use zone redundancy with Azure Cache for Redis. Uh, by default, caches in the standard or premium tier have built-in replication with a two-node configuration, a primary and replica host, with two identical copies of your data. Uh, but now with this Azure Cache for Redis feature in preview, you can now support up to four nodes and a cache distributed across multiple AZs. With this update, it can significantly enhance the availability of your Azure Cache for Redis instance with giving you greater peace of mind. Azure Zone Redundancy is only available to the premium tier of Azure Cache for Redis. You're just making sure you have to figure out premium versus all the other levels of Azure services. And the SLA for Azure Cache for Redis is typically offered at 99.9% SLA. With a new Zone Redundancy, they'll give you a 99.95% SLA, which is a little bit lower than I expected, uh, to be honest. I figured they would give you a, a four nines availability, but they'll give you an extra half for that cost of running basically double the nodes. Well, sandbagging,
2: right? You you want to have a little leeway, especially when you get four nines. is like seconds of downtime
3: tolerated, right? So, yeah. Plus, that leaves for a, an opportunity for another announcement in three months when
1: you up the SLA to four nines. That's true. I mean, you know how they love to do that. Yeah, <laughs> marketing genius. Speaking of marketing genius, actually, so we talked about Azure Space a little while ago and how they were coming out with Azure Orbital. They have now wrapped Azure Orbital into a new portfolio of cloud products for Azure Space. Again, that verticalization story coming out again. (laughs) For use cases such as simulating satellite constellation and providing internet connectivity to edge devices. So, Microsoft is going to partner with SpaceX Corp. to support parts of this portfolio. And the portfolio today includes Azure Orbital, which we previously talked about here, which is basically the ability to talk to a satellite via ground station or antenna. So if you have billions of dollars to put space rockets into space with satellites and then you want to talk to them this is a great service for you. If you don't have billions of dollars for a satellite, you can use Azure Orbital Emulator, which is our new service enabling customers too poor to own their own actual satellites with the ability to create software replicas of individual satellites or even entire constellations of satellites that they can use as a testbed for validating components before launch. Uh, so I mean I can just have virtual satellites that's pretty cool. And then the new Azure Modular Data Center, which we'll talk about as our next story in a little bit. But uh, the company will work with SpaceX and SESSA, which is a satellite provider to enable communications between the field, Azure Data Centers, and the modular data centers we'll talk about in a minute. Interesting to see, you know, Azure kind of said we're going to do Azure Orbital, and now they've really expanded that to a whole portfolio. So I'm curious to see what else they add to this portfolio over time.
2: Yeah, it's neat to see, you know so much work into this. Amazon has their their ground station and now Azure has this it, for allowing I guess it's a, it's democratizing, you know, a little bit. It's going to allow more access for people to play around with satellites and and how it would work and kind of just get if nothing else, you know, plant seeds of thought to to you know, maybe change the way we manage space communication. So this is this is wild. It feels like it's a a frontier that we're about to breach for some of these things. This is cool.
1: The Register, though, had the headline of the day for this, uh, which was, Azure in Space. (laughs) 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 That is fantastic. Uh, The Register always has the best headlines. That's their their claim to fame. So I mentioned it in the, the Space article, but the Microsoft Azure Modular Data Center Uh, is now available to you. Uh, Microsoft has designed this modular data center for customers who need cloud computing capabilities in hybrid or challenging environments, including remote areas. Leveraging Azure space offerings and the partnerships you can extend satellite connectivity to the Azure modular data center anywhere in the world. The modular data center can give customers a path to migrate apps to Azure while still running these workloads on premises with low latency connections to their own data center. And around the world, there are significant cloud computing and storage needs in areas with adverse conditions where low communication, disrupted network availability, and limited access to specialized infrastructure would have previously prevented taking advantage of cloud computing. So, this is a big announcement. As it does enable some really interesting use cases, and if you think about outposts, you can see outposts get into a similar situation where they're in a hardened container. It's really the snowmobile, but on steroids. So you can put this onto a truck, and you can drive it to your data center, and now you have Azure plugged into your data center. You can put it on a boat and ship it to South America and have it an Azure data center there. Uh, Even if Microsoft says that market's too small for them, but it's big enough for you, you now have that Azure capability right there for you. So there's a ton of use cases. The ones they don't mention in the article, of course, are the military ones, uh, (laughs) which I'm sure they don't want to talk about because their employees will get grumpy. (laughs) do (laughs) template. But uh, there are a lot of really interesting use cases in oil and gas and military use cases in the Middle East that could take advantage of this capability as well as, you know, you think about boats and, you know, aircraft carriers and all kinds of things where you might want a data center on a boat. Or just special events yeah, yeah special it, events so in
2: a previous too. life you know this concept has been around for a while and so like it's it, you think about something like the Olympics or something that happens you know every once in a while where you know building these like concepts and then just shipping them across the world for and then shipping them back when you're done so it's it's super powerful it's super flexible it's it was a lot of fun working on a project like this so it's
3: cool I'm glad to see it still still needed. I was super excited when just in general data centers in a container effectively were being launched by like HP I think when I was there in 2007 they had launched them and you know there's some pretty cool economic efficiencies to to doing it that way and they just thought the whole concept that man I can have a local data center without pretty much just by pouring four small slabs of concrete and having my data center you know attached to the back of my building i think is super cool and it gives uh, when you integrate that with, hey, this is this is Azure, so now I'm using the same API as I'm doing everything I was doing before with my Azure cloud, except I've got this local capability as well. Even if you're not trucking it around, I think it's super cool. Yeah, to be able to have a data center effectively without doing the internal infrastructure work.
1: Yeah.
2: And, you know, like we, I've seen workloads where, you know, allowing maybe, you know, a research entity or a school or university, you know, who couldn't build out a whole bunch of compute resources, you know, because it doesn't make sense. You know, these cloud providers can lend that compute, maybe for a fee, but it's going to be cheaper than building out your own infrastructure. And so, it might allow for research and, and certain projects to happen that otherwise wouldn't. So,
3: yeah. No race floor, none of that
1: crap. Just drop it in the parking lot. You're done. Well, an Oracle story has slipped into the show notes once again. Always fun. (laughs) Oracle has announced a new service that's designed to help customers run their most challenging transaction processing and data analytics projects in the cloud without making app changes. The quote here from... Juan Louisa, Executive Vice President of Mission Critical Database Technologies at Oracle, is With today's announcement, Oracle enables customers to run any business-critical database workload, including the largest and most compute and memory-intensive workloads with dramatically faster performance, higher scalability, and elasticity, and lower costs than any other cloud provider. Oracle's new database cloud service is based on the proven 8th-generation Exadata X8M platform optimized for Oracle Database and already in use by 86% of the Fortune Global 100 to run their most demanding workloads." So this basically is the ability to run a really, really big Oracle database in the cloud. Oracle X data makes it possible to move demanding databases and workloads, leveraging Intel's corpse obtain persistent memory that bypasses the OS and network stack to enable 2.5 times faster transaction processing times and 10 times better latency. And Oracle wants you to know that this is 50 times faster than the largest Amazon RDS instance you can get. Now I don't know if that's the ARM ones or just the Intel, but that's what they say. The Exadata Cloud Service, X8M, is based on Oracle Rack, which enables greater scale and high availability for all types of database workloads. An Oracle-said database deployed on the servers can scale up to 4,600 central processing unit cores, 44 terabytes of dynamic random access memory, 96 terabytes of persistent memory, and 1.6 petabytes of flash, and 25 petabytes of database capacity. This box, not counting the storage box and the RAM box and all those other things because they're all separate boxes, uh, just the main large box that runs the database is $14.51 dollars 51 cents per, cent, uh, cents per hour, $14.51. So that's a $10,000 server. Oh, and by the way, that does not account to the Oracle database licensing you need for it. So this is above my pay grade to run this server, but uh, you know, if you need this kind of capability and you need this massive Oracle database and you don't wanna re-engineer it, uh, you can now give Oracle fistfuls of money to make this happen. This is just a flex,
2: come on. Like, you know, th- they took the time to actually spell out random access memory which no one does anymore. You know, like this is just as big a numbers as we can say.
3: You know, it's great. I think it is telling though, right? Because the Oracle's really good at helping people scale vertically. And the reason why they're 50 times faster than any AWS RDS service, I would imagine, is because Amazon is pretty committed to you know, working with customers who
1: want to find ways to scale horizontally. I mean, I was thinking I could run, I could run a whole VMware data center on top of this box. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? I'll just put VMware on top of it. I'll carve up into virtual machines and I'll have one big massive failure point that I can now use. <laughs> the server is down,
2: down. Until it went, <laughs> until it
3: melted down into, you know,
1: molten Which server? slack. The,
3: we only the have one. One. The server. Server.
1: And because and because it's Oracle, by the way, I also don't have to upgrade the VMware stack so I can let the same Oracle, ver- you know, VMware can be this version that I deploy on the first time and never have to upgrade it again because Oracle doesn't do that for me either. So it's there's win-wins all the way around this bad boy.
3: I have a recommended new brand for this server. They could call it the mainframe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Indeed, they could. I like it. I do. I do like that. All right, Peter. Well, why don't you take us to the lightning round, uh, where we don't have any mainframe jokes tonight, unfortunately. Well, maybe we do. We'll we'll see. Yeah, you never
3: know. Azure Cognitive Services has achieved human parity in image captioning.
1: I mean, if this is your high watermark of Cognitive Services, that I can tell you that Ryan's looking to the left, Peter's looking to the right, now Ryan's laughing at me, I don't know that I'm that impressed. I was just thinking
2: about the, the captioning, you know, the auto captions for, for video. Like, and, like, yeah, human parody, we're good. You know, Emperor Penguin walks by, you know, like, no. Nah.
1: <laughs> Audience clapping. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs>
3: There's a new course for Amazon Elastic Kubernetes Service, Amazon EKS, available.
1: As long as it covers how to upgrade from uh, 116 to 118 without having to destroy your entire cluster, I will take this class.
2: No, no, you're you're forgetting the most important part of running Kubernetes, which is telling everyone that you're
1: running Kubernetes. (laughs) And that you you took the course on Kubernetes, too. Mm
3: -hmm. (laughs) Our costs are the same. Our availability is the same. No, 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 you don't understand. We're running Kubernetes. AWS IAM Access Analyzer now supports archive rules for existing findings.
2: Perfect. So, all those things that the, the automatic analyzer found, I can just ignore them now by archiving them.
1: Ah, I, I was thinking more along the lines of you know when security says, you know, who changed the setting? I can now go back and prove to them that it's been that way for four years because I set up this analyzer four years ago that told me it was that way.
3: Yes. <laughs> you approved it 46 times. Amazon RDS for Postgres supports concurrent
1: major version upgrades of read replicas. And the question I have to ask is who really wants this? Because that's a terrible rollback. <laughs> like yeah, like there's some bad life choices here.
3: I think there's options here. Aren't there options for leveraging this when you're doing I, I would think there's options to do to do upgrade paths with less maintenance window time and more testing. If you're upgrading the read replica and then you could test against it and then you can flip to it.
1: But that's not what this is. this is. This is about, you know, if I have three nodes in a cluster, it'll upgrade all three of them at the same time. So you do have reduced downtime. Oh, just read replicas. I bet somebody wants it.
3: I want it. I'm going to use yeah. it next time I can just to do it. Yeah. Those who want to live dangerously. Okay. I'll yeah. let you know how it goes. I'll let yeah. you know how it goes. AWS glue crawlers now support Amazon document DB with MongoDB compatibility and MongoDB collections.
1: Sorry, I got drunk. Every time you said Mongo, I had to drink.
3: (laughs) 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 All right. Fluent bit connector for Azure Storage is now going to support Azure Data Explorer streaming.
1: Proving that the only true big data problem
3: is dealing with my logs. It's one of them. Port forwarding sessions created using Session Manager now support multiple simultaneous connections.
1: I'm so glad they fixed that use case because I was really disappointed that I couldn't accidentally go to the wrong tab and drop the production database before. Now I can. So thank you for that. I really appreciate that.
3: Nothing, Ryan? You're not happy or sad or a medium or indifferent? Well,
2: I'm still just blown away that I can now do port forwarding without actually having an active SSH connection. Still just, it's like magic to me. Just living in a new
1: world with unicorns I mean, getting, getting SSH to properly proxy is magic too, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That it, was quite painful. Good point. I, <laughs> I know. thing is about on Linux and Mac, I tried it on Putty. That's, that's yeah. a whole other thing. Impossible. It's doable. I, I had to figure it out though. It was, it was a bit tricky. I was not impressed. <laughs> I was like, really? This is how Putty does proxying? Like, sweet Jesus. Yeah, I would do that. I would do that with
3: ssh and i swear i would do the same port forwarding configuration 27 times in a row that wouldn't work and then it would work and the one time i could get it to work i made sure
2: to like steal it in stone in my ssh config so i could forget about it and never remember it again
3: (laughs) never remember it again yeah Mm -hmm. AWS data sync simplifies initial setup for
1: online data transfers which is what you would think it would do from day one be simple setup for online data transfers so nice they finally achieved their narrative dream
2: no, well, any sync process where you're moving data from one place to the other should initially start off as very hard to manage and then get simpler over time. That, that's, the,
3: that's the process. Well, AWS Systems Manager Patch Manager now provides a catalog of all patches for Amazon Linux. So,
1: first of all, what were you doing before? But worse, are you now going to tell me I need to patch things I don't even have installed because I didn't apply the patch? Like, oh, you're not running uh, OpenSSH 4.3, so you need to patch for it. Like, that, that's all this tells me. Like, I don't know what this is for. I think it's just one of those things where it's like, oh, no, we got
2: them all this time. It's not just the three we were you were ignoring before.
3: Catalog makes it sound like you get to pick.
1: It, it So The actual thing here is that the... Uh, if you have a, basically a set of rules and you've excluded certain patches for a host, you may still want to report on it for compliance reasons that the patches you've excluded are now not in compliance. And so, yeah, you can do that, basically. So you can say, regardless of what my catalog says, you can tell me all the patches. So if it's on your catalog, it'll now work. Which then you can open a ticket to your friends, your security friends and say, why is this patch not in my catalog to install? Don't you just
2: snooze that just like everything else? Like yeah, apply updates yes. now? Nah, later. Yes, Lick. Later, snooze. Later.
1: Until it forces Tomorrow. you. Like, try, but, try again. You know, a week later, it's like, you you snooze this too many times. We're going to force it right in the middle of this call you're on. Well, I thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. Amazon EMR
3: now provides up to 35% lower cost and up to 15% improved performance for Spark workloads on Graviton 2-based instances.
1: I mean, all I see is Sparkles. Sparkles everywhere.
2: I don't really have a joke on this, but I'm still enamored on the, the the performance improvements of the Graviton instances. And so it's, you know, it's a lot of gravitas, I guess, by EMR. A lot, Ooh, of, gravity. Nice.
1: A lot of gravity in your feelings about this.
3: Bye-bye, Intel. AWS Systems
1: Manager now supports free text search of runbooks. I mean, why wouldn't I want to search for text in my runbook of like, where did I say that I wanted to reboot the host? I don't know. Now I, can, now I can search for it. Reboot host and take down production. Perfect.
2: I think it's more you can, you know, definitively say that there is not a runbook for the thing you want to do now. Right. Because <laughs> that's that's typically what happens. Like, oh, it doesn't exist.
1: Or or you can find out that you have, you know, that every runbook does a bad thing you don't want it to do. <laughs> that's our thing. Like, I don't want this to reset IIS. Oh, look,
3: every runbook does. Let's say you are, you hired a new SRE and an issue came up and he couldn't find the runbook for it. So he did a free text search and you saw the free text search and you thought, oh no, I hired the wrong guy. What would that free text search be?
1: Well, I'm more concerned that the SRE person I hired knew what an Amazon runbook was to begin with. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, I I don't know. Like, how is baby formed? I think that that would be, you know, like... like like That would be be a pretty bad
1: search. That would be a pretty bad search. I mean, the one that maybe is like, how do I reboot the server?
3: How is baby formed? I like that. You're in trouble, Justin. Amazon Recognition now detects personal protective equipment, PPE, such as face covers, head covers, and... You guessed it. Hand covers on persons in images.
1: You know, I, I I was thinking about this the other day and you know, all the machine learning systems out there that are used to seeing photos of people with you know full faces and or like even your iPhone with the face recognition and like just one day all of a sudden everyone lost like all these features in their face. Like just magically one day when masks became a thing and like all of a sudden all these things are like, it doesn't compute like all these weird air conditions. And now at least, you know, Amazon's told the thing. No, no, that's okay. Robots, everything's okay, dad. Also guard
3: dogs. Think about dogs who are trained pretty much when you see a guy in a mask, it's bad. Like guard dogs, they must be freaking out right now. Just sitting on the street corner at their
1: cafe with
3: their owner. And then just everyone walking by with masks on.
1: Uh, that's how I feel. Drug dogs probably felt when p- marijuana became legal too. Like I'm, there's marijuana in this bag. Like <laughs> yeah. you need to do something. You know, <laughs> you're you're the cop. Arrest this man. And you're like, yeah, go along, sir. And they're like, I'm supposed to get a treat. I'm sitting down. There's drugs in that bag. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <And> like, <laughs> I'm sitting down. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's hilarious. No, I look forward to the day where my iPhone will will work again because I'm wearing my special mask that indicates that. Only me have access to this phone.
1: I'm, I'm sure what will happen because they didn't do it with the iPhone 12s is that iPhone 13 will have brought back the look, you know, because on the new iPad Airs, they have added a little fingerprint reader on the power button. They'll do that in the iPad 13 or the iPhone 13 right after, you know, vaccines come out and we don't have to wear masks anymore.
2: Yep. I'm specifically not buying the iPhone 12 so that I can have that feature in iPhone 13. And I do look forward to the fact that I no longer need it because we can all run around without wearing protective equipment. I
1: mean, I'm, a, I'm an Apple lending, so I'll be buying an, an iPhone 12. Yeah. Apple upgrade program.
2: True, true to form. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I let you buy it and maybe you'll sell me on it. But I look at the 5G coverage and I'm not I'm not into it yet.
1: The 5G, putting all the reviews, the 5G is the least important feature. The camera uh, upgrades this year are pretty amazing, apparently
2: they do say that every time the cameras the camera technology does get more amazing over time. It is quite wild like what you can do like what you can what an idiot like me who knows nothing about aperture or light or anything and how good a picture like some bumbling fool like myself can take a great picture because of the technology I love it.
3: without some ridiculous thing that weighs 16 pounds and has a monster lens on it. It takes forty-five seconds to autofocus and take a picture. You know. Yeah, it is incredible. That is it for lightning round. I desperately want to know what the answer to how his baby made is, and so I'm ge- I'm giving it to Ryan, even though I set him yes. up for it.
1: <laughs> would you like to Would you like to change in the show notes uh, that from four to five, Ryan? It feels good when you. I do would. It. I, I would. Come yeah, <laughs> oh, from good? behind. Hey, yeah, you're only two behind on Jonathan. I know. I, I do technically think that if I added up the number of weeks left in the year, I'm not sure any of you can catch up to me. I'm not entirely I know, sure. That's yet. okay. It's a race for second place. It's like Formula One, you know? Yeah, that's fine.
3: Mercedes has locked it up, but we're still watching to see the midfield and how they finish up.
1: Well, that is it for another fantastic week in the cloud. We will see you guys all next week here at the Clap Pod. Have a good night. Bye, everybody. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions.